tonight's New Testament lesson is Matthew chapter 7. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and spacious is the road leading to destruction, and those who are entering through it are many. But how narrow is the gate, and confined the road leading to life, and those who are finding it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you clothed as sheep, but within their ravenous wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Grapes are not collected from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? Thus, every good tree makes good fruits, but the rotten tree makes evil fruits. A good tree is not able to make evil fruits, nor is a rotten tree able to make good fruits. Every tree not making good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. So indeed, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Master, Master, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Master, Master, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many powerful things in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I have never known you. Depart from me, doers of lawlessness. Matthew's gospel was written to orient Jesus' followers in their lives. This passage is about divine instruction, revealed wisdom, Torah, and prophecy. Since Torah and wisdom merge, You'll hear me saying Torah wisdom as one thing. And when thinking about divine revelation and ethical life, we'll talk about vitality. Is this working? No. Can you? Ah, great. Okay. When thinking about divine revelation and the ethical life, we'll talk about vitality, basically a power that generates life and flourishing. A major idea that I want us to grasp is how Matthew 7 presents the ethical life as enabling nearness to God's vitality, enabling a good life as God's children. It's a great text for understanding really the Jewishness of the New Testament, the role of good works in Jesus' teaching, and how Torah was a way more dynamic, lively concept than we often realize. Revealed Torah was inseparable from the vitality and love of a transcendent God. A problem of sorts is how this transcendence highlights a gap between heaven and earth. But an ethics based on revealed Torah wisdom narrows that gap and fosters fullness of life. In our text, Jesus seems less interested in prophets per se, more interested in Torah wisdom and the ethical life as a path toward flourishing in nearness to God. That's why Jesus ends up talking about trees and fruits flourishing, or for that matter, rotting when they're cut off from vitality. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew depicts Jesus like the figure of Moses at Sinai. Each one ascends a mountain and mediates Torah or instruction to Israel. Torah basically means instruction. Torah, wisdom, and prophecy intertwine. 
at the end of Moses' giving of Torah in Deuteronomy 34, before he dies, this mediator of Torah imparts the spirit of wisdom to his successor Joshua, and the text calls Moses the greatest of Israel's prophets. This is 34 verses 9 to 12. Moses was a prophetic mediator of divine wisdom. And the fact that this instruction must be mediated is itself important. Jesus also mediates divine wisdom. The Bible doesn't really support the idea that we have direct, unmediated access to God. That's why in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 and elsewhere, wisdom is personified as a prophetess who mediates divine wisdom, divine presence to the world. At best, the creator is experienced or revealed indirectly. Like water, we depend on this presence, but it defies our efforts to contain it. God's otherness or transcendence can mean that revelation remains ambiguous to us, something known incompletely at best, never within our grasp. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 is a nice statement whoops, about divine transcendence. Can you hit the space bar and go to Ecclesiastes 5, 2? Yeah. One more time. Sorry. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your hearts to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. There's a gap here between human and divine. Similarly, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that God and God's wisdom belong to a higher order than what we can know through personal experience. And significantly, here in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, not even those disciples in the immediate presence of the risen Messiah experience closure about what had been revealed. We read here, when they saw him, they worshiped. And we read in, in the NIV, but some doubted. Now, this phrase, uh, despite the English translation's use of but some, which implies an exception from the majority of people here, this phrase is not really in Matthew's Greek. What we have in the text is simply, when they saw him, they worshipped and they doubted. God's otherness and Revelation's ambiguity point to a gap between us and God a gap that's desirable to narrow for the sake of nearness to God. The issue of how God is encountered is a broader context for understanding Torah, wisdom, as well as prophecy, which frames Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7. First, we should step back, though, and ask, what is a prophet? I began tonight by mentioning God's otherness to help us better appreciate the gravity of prophetic translation mediating instruction from a transcendent other to human agents. Traditionally, in the ancient Near East, we can think of a prophet's job as a type of translation. Not just anyone could do it. You basically went to seminary, and you became a multilingual scribe and prophet, learning this task of translation. Prophets worked for kings, and they had jobs in royal courts, analogous to what we would think of as a political advisor. That's why prophets like Nathan or Isaiah are shown giving direct input to kings like David or Ahaz. But more than translating texts from, say, German into English, prophets aimed at translating not so much texts 
but divine instruction. It's possible to translate well, but translations can also be deficient, wrong, or misleading. Our text's mention of false prophecy is part of a broader ancient Jewish discourse about revelation. Jesus carries on this discourse to teach his followers about ethics as a lived translation of Torah wisdom, which generates flourishing. The question is whether our lives amount to good translations. Do our works convey good fruit or rotten fruit? This raises another question. What is false prophecy? Exactly what made false prophecy false differs between texts. It's not just a singular idea. In Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah tells of prophetic deceptions, where the deception is, that, is a message of peace and comfort when legitimate revelation is, in fact, judgment. Later, Jeremiah 28 is a story about Jeremiah and Hananiah, who had conflicting messages about the Babylonian Empire. The narrative says that Hananiah is indeed a prophet, which lets us know that a false prophet can be a real prophet with a skewed message. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone is not actually a prophet. Ezekiel, for instance, basically acknowledges being wrong about the fate of a colony called Tyre. This is in chapters 26 and 29. But let's fast forward closer to the period of the New Testament. One more time, sorry where we have a settlement called Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Here we have the earliest known use of the term false prophet in Hebrew or Aramaic. In a fragmentary text with a very user-friendly name of 4Q339, uh, there's a list of names introduced with the heading false prophets who have arisen in Israel. It mentions Hananiah and seven other figures. Even more like Matthew chapter 7 is this next text, which describes conflicting claims about translating revelation within the Qumran community. The issue is what to do when some people say that a figure is a reliable prophet, but others are saying that this figure leads people astray. The text says, however, the prophet who rises up to preach apostasy to you to make you turn away from God shall die. And if the tribe from which he comes should rise up and say, he's not to die, for he's a just man, he's a trustworthy prophet, you shall come with that tribe and your elders and your judges to the place which your God will choose in one of your tribes before the anointed priest upon whose head the oil of anointing has been poured. The text then goes on to mention a procedure that is probably intended to help identify false prophets, which is basically the concern in Matthew 7. This is how you will know them. This was a lively aspect, in other words, of Jewish discourse during the first century, during this general era, including among Jesus' own followers in the first century and after. Matthew 7 takes the concept, the idea of prophetic translation and uses it to help us understand an ethical life where revealed Torah wisdom is translated into deeds. Revelation as such can surpass us, but importantly, its effects, its fruits can also tell us something. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that what indicates a good translation of revelation is a life that aligns with divine Torah and generates its fruit. When warning Jesus' followers against false prophets, 
our text imagery stands in the tradition of wisdom literature, like Proverbs, some Psalms, and the book of Ben Sirah. Through agricultural imagery, like plants and trees and life-giving water, these writings emphasize that Torah wisdom becomes manifest in ethics. As a revelation, Torah wisdom is the water that gives life to plants and enables them to bear fruit. Multiple texts say that two ways or roads are possible in relation to Torah wisdom, the way of the righteous and that of the wicked. Like Jesus' image of two ways in verses 13 to 14, one fosters life and growth, one brings decay and destruction. In this tradition, the righteous and the wicked designate usually no concrete individual or group. They're generalizing categories into which our formation situates us. It's about our stance in relation to God's gift, the water of Torah wisdom. Consider the imagery again of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the Torah of the Lord and who meditates on his Torah day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and this is the cool part, and whose leaf does not wither. So this is not regular water. This is the idea. In Psalm 1 and many other texts, Torah wasn't reducible to something written or to any set of rules. As water enlivens vegetation, Torah wisdom here is a divinely rooted principle of vitality that translates into non-withering leaves and fruits, with fruit meaning our works or their consequences. When Jesus describes false prophets, he's saying that their works show no coherent translation of Torah wisdom. Instead of coherence, they live as divided selves, not empowered by Torah's unifying capacity. This is why they have the sheep-like appearance that diverges from an inner wolf-like character. And crucially, our character inevitably shows in our deeds. That's why in verses 17 to 18, Jesus calls the false prophet a rotten tree, yielding evil fruits. Verse 18 affirms that ethical character and actions are inseparable. A good tree is not able to make evil fruits, nor is a rotten tree able to make good fruits. Much like the generalized portrayal of the wicked in Psalm 1 and elsewhere, this figure of a false prophet seems to be no particular individual or predefined group. It's a deliberate stereotype meant to instruct and provoke. Jesus uses the idea of a false prophet as a springboard into a point, an instructive point, which is the key role of his followers' concrete works in translating Torah wisdom, which can root us, letting us grow and bear fruit, and transforming us over time to become more like God. Jesus' tree imagery targets potentially anyone, the good tree and the rotten tree are categories into which the quality of our deeds situates us, depending on our response to God's gift of instruction. Although we can't adequately elaborate on it tonight, later in Matthew 11, Jesus identifies himself with Torah wisdom, the venue of divine life or vitality. According to Matthew 7, verse 23, 
in the NIV, false prophets will be told to depart from him because they are evildoers whom he doesn't know. But this rendering of evildoer is too vague. You can go on, I'm sorry. This, evil, this evildoer rendering is too vague. Uh, the phrase Jesus uses for those he doesn't recognize is actually doers of lawlessness. To be known by him, the standard is Torah. Our deeds alignment with Torah is what extends or reduces the gap between us and God. The idea was that Torah wisdom is a gracious invitation to flourish. It mediates vitality, enabling nearness to God on a way toward life. Something we need to understand is how Matthew 7 depicts revelation itself and the ethical life in terms of vitality. Before, during, and after Jesus' day, there was a widespread sense that revealed Torah wisdom is bigger than any text or group of texts could ever be, even though texts can channel traces of it. Bigger than our notion of a Bible, it wasn't reducible to writing or rules or held to be fully graspable by human minds. Torah was a principle of vitality that enables flourishing, which is easier to see if we actually think about the metaphors used for describing it. In keeping with prior Jewish tradition, like Proverbs or the book of Ben Sirah, Matthew's gospel portrays revelation and ethical practice in dynamic agricultural terms of living roots, expanding trees, budding fruits for those established by Torah wisdom. Like Psalm 1's metaphor of Torah as life-giving water that generates non-withering trees, in Ben Sirah 24, divine wisdom speaks of herself as an inexhaustible source of vitality that enlivens whatever she touches. She says, I took root in an honored people. I grew tall like a cedar. I grew tall like a palm tree, like a fair olive tree in the field, and like a plane tree beside water, I grew tall. This should sound like Psalm 1. Like a terebinth, I spread out my branches, and my branches are glorious and graceful. Like the vine, I bud forth delights, and my blossoms become glorious and abundant fruit. Come to me, all who desire me, and eat your fill of my fruits. Wisdom herself connects this vitality in verse 23 to the Torah that Moses commanded us. Ben Sirah identifies Torah wisdom as the path to flourishing, in contrast to going one's own way and merely being subject to one's own passions. On this path, Ben Sirah says, you consume your own leaves and destroy your fruits, and you'll be laid to rest like a withered tree. This is the opposite of Psalm 1. He's basically saying that people aren't good at going their own way, at relying on their own resources or judgments. Without Torah wisdom's vitality, we wither up and we die. Our lives depend on a vitality beyond us. This tradition is the context for Jesus' talk of ways and trees and fruits, with ethical practice or works as key in identifying who has been rooted through Torah wisdom's vitality. Through its vitality, deeds like prophetic work translate Torah into good fruit. Jesus says how much is at stake in his followers' actions. Character formation is a crucial process for entering the kingdom of heaven on a road, a way that Jesus says is confined 
and only found by a few. So he tells listeners to stay vigilant in their search, to stay attuned to a wisdom which can form their hearts to become receptive to the God who endows the power of life. What God reveals is expressed through images of vitality. In Proverbs 3, wisdom the prophetess is said to be a tree of life for all who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. I hope we're sensing how the images and ideas in Matthew 7 participate in broader discourses about revelation as transcendent life or vitality that we depend upon for flourishing. By identifying himself as mediating divine vitality, Jesus carries on Jewish wisdom traditions which emphasize a good life as an extended ethical and theological project. Disciples were invited to submit to and embrace the tradition of Torah wisdom as a gift, letting it orient them continually. A long-standing idea was that Torah offered a lifeline to the source of wisdom and life, enabling disciples in turn to bear good fruits and elevating their very self toward the Creator. By the same token, spurning Torah wisdom ultimately fosters bad fruit and decay. This is vitality in decline. In Proverbs 1, we're hearing again from Wisdom the Prophetess, who says of those who spurn her, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. And in case her mediation of vitality is at all unclear, she later adds, those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord, but those who fail to find me harm themselves. It really says they commit violence against their soul. I don't know why this is translated this way, but it says, all who hate me love death. It's a great line. So either way, the response to wisdom is what forms the self. Whether someone receives or dismisses Torah wisdom, that choice is a kind of cultivation or rotting that translates through normal everyday practice into their very self. Ben Sira writes, the test of a person is in his conversation. Its fruit discloses the cultivation of a tree. So a person's speech discloses the cultivation of his mind. This is heart, same word for heart. So keep that in mind for a moment. As a guiding metaphor for the ethical life, cultivation is an intentional activity for keeping trees nourished and fruitful. So when Jesus admonishes some Pharisees later in Matthew, he adopts the same terms as Ben Sira, pointing out the import of human doing or making and cultivating trees well or poorly. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For from the fruit, the tree is recognized. O brood of vipers, how are you able to speak good things while evil? For out of the heart's abundance, the mouth speaks. Both Ben Sira and Jesus end up talking about the condition of the heart, which is determined by someone's stance toward God's gift of Torah wisdom. Its enlivening power is something God is ready to give through those who mediate instruction. That's the point in Proverbs 2, where an anonymous instructor called Father in this text tells a student that this instructional tradition opens up the heart toward unity with divine wisdom, with God's will. 
It's a long-term ethical project about responding to what God freely gives, following a certain path and cultivating an orientation that lets you join wisdom's family. The shared pursuit of wisdom in these texts between instructor and student involves family terms, that of parent and child. We read here, my son, if you take my words and store up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and guiding your heart toward discernment, if you call out for understanding and call for discernment, if you seek it like silver and search it out like treasure, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God, or we could say divine knowledge. For Yahweh gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and discernment. The same instructor then says in verse 10 that for attentive disciples, the gift of God's own Torah wisdom will enter your heart, elevating it toward God's will. Yet, this unity with God's will is not taken for granted. It's an ongoing project. Aspiring to unity with the Father's will is also at issue in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus prays for the Father's will to become manifest on earth as it is in heaven. Implicitly, earth is not like heaven in this respect. This echoes Ecclesiastes chapter 5, which we saw earlier. Jesus here also acknowledges a gap between heaven and earth, telling us that true life involves narrowing this gap, becoming nearer to the Father's will through embracing his Torah wisdom embodied in Jesus. With Jesus mediating divine wisdom, we read later that doing the Father's will transforms the standing of Jesus' disciples into family categories, similar to wisdom's family in Proverbs 2. According to Jesus in Matthew 12, verses 49 to 50, living in alignment with Torah wisdom generates familial nearness. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Becoming Jesus's family is a profound responsibility and a profound hope in God's gift of nearness and life through Torah wisdom. This gracious invitation to nearness, I think, is what Matthew is trying to get us to see. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we praise you for revealing traces of yourself in a way that draws us toward you and your fullness. We ask that you lead us to orient our whole being around your wisdom, especially as expressed in the life and glorification of Jesus, your son, through whom we can become your children with lives that are made whole by your wise power. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.